Well, good morning. My name is John Allen. Uh, welcome to Risen Church. As Katie uh, said earlier, we exist to share life in Christ, our risen Lord, with each other, our city, and beyond. And because the life that we have in Christ isn't just something that starts one day when we die, like it's not just something that's like an ethereal state of heaven, it's an abundant life that starts now. I want you to get that this morning. Abundant life in Christ began the moment that we received the grace of God in Christ. That's when death was arrested and my life began. We just sang about it. Right? Like this is the life in Christ that we share with each other, our city and beyond. This is the strong song of the redeemed. This is what we're inviting everyone to join in and sing. These are the lyrics that we just sang, right? Like sometimes we sing through these songs and it's like, oh yeah, you know, I'm at church and I'm singing songs and I don't really know if I even believe this. I'm not even sure what it says. I'm thinking about lunch. I'm thinking about, you know, other things. That's, I, I want you to be present here with us this morning. Like I want you to think about the realities that you've just sung This is the endless love pouring down on us that's available to you now, right? Like, it's not just like, it's this endless love. Endless love pouring down on us, you know, free. I'm free. You know? Like, (laughs) forever free. And not just one day free, forever free now. On a deep soul, transcendent soul level, because Jesus arose with our freedom in hand. That's when death was arrested and my life began. At his resurrection, risen church, that's a chain breaker song. Amen? That's the gospel. It's what you're singing over one another. It's what others are singing over you. It's what Jesus is singing over our church. This is the truth that God became a man. He lived the life that you couldn't live, and he died the death that you deserve to die, and he conquered death in the grave, paving the way to eternal life, eternal life that starts now. Not just one day when you die, it starts now through the indwelling access of the Holy Spirit that fills, quickens, enlivens, invigorates, and animates your entire being for his glory and his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. Now. Too often we lose sight of that reality because on this side of eternity, we're in a battle to keep that truth in focus. Amen? We live in a world that is jacked up. It's true. And so it's easy to think that our salvation and redemption is something that's in the future. And all we can do is just sit back and endure this broken world around us until we die. But that's the enemy's tactic to sideline God's people. That's what he wants to do because the truth is that in Christ, you've been set free already. For whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And that freedom is ours in Christ today. Not just one day when we die, nor is it only relegated to when heaven fully manifests upon the earth. Like, don't get me wrong, I am looking forward to that day. Amen? Going to be great, right? 
But this morning, I want to show you that our hope for that day informs our hope for today. See, when we sing about death being arrested, it's not just a sentimental comfort, right? It's an anthem of spiritual warfare that's declared in victory over a defeated enemy. That's what we're doing when we come together and we sing and declare these truths. You see, the enemy wants you to live in fear, right? He wants you to despair of this life. But Jesus has called you to engage and to live and love and walk in the victory of heaven even now upon the earth. You see, this morning we're going to dive into this vision of the kingdom of heaven as it's fully manifested physically upon the earth as it will be physically manifested upon the earth, as when it comes in its fullness, in a future fullness. We're going to look at this vision. But my prayer is that it would be a vision that sets you free to live like a citizen of that kingdom even today. You see, often we underestimate the extent to which his kingdom is available even now. So for just over a year, we've been walking through the book of Revelation verse by verse. We haven't avoided any of the difficult parts, and we've allowed the Holy Spirit to pull back the physical veil and reveal what's actually going on in the world around us. It's been a sobering journey, right? Like, if you've been in this this with us, like, it doesn't sugarcoat anything. It is a sobering awakening to the realities of this world, but it gives us eyes to see the world around us as it actually is. And I hope that it's been an awakening of both hope and courage For all of us as we walk through this, because we are able to see who is actually in control and who actually holds the victory. That's why we're calling this series Victory Unveiled. And so for many, I know, again, this has been quite an awakening. Like it's it's the reality that, look, I'm not just in this inebriated state of detachment. It's a reality that things are not as they seem and things are not as they should be. That's the world we live in. And so we've learned that this letter isn't just relevant for the first century church that it was originally written to, nor is it only relevant for a generation in a distant future. This letter reveals the reality of what was unfolding around them then in the first century, as well as what's unfolding around us now in the 21st century. And so in order to understand it accurately to us now in the 21st century, you got to understand what it would have meant to them in the first century. So we've been doing that. So this morning we have come to Revelation 21, which describes the new heavens and the new earth. Now, no, that is not some hidden Bible code predicting Christ's return in the 21st century because we're reading chapter 21 of Revelation, right? It's kind of funny. It's kind of silly. It's, it's like, oh, who would ever do something like that? Turn on the Discovery Channel. Turn on the History Channel. They got some nonsense on there talking about Revelation, man. Look, guys, let me, this is a side note. It's not in my notes. This is a nugget for you in the extra anointed service of 11 o'clock. If someone does not have the spirit inside of them, they cannot interpret this letter. I don't care what degrees they have. They are wrong. You can only understand what this letter is saying if you have spiritual eyes, ears, and hearts to receive and understand it. Otherwise, you're going to come up with some crazy stuff. (laughs) And they have. All right. Time back in. So this morning, we're going to talk about heaven. 
And I'm talking about the real heaven. I'm talking about the heaven that God's word describes for us. I'm not talking about that weird metaphysical floaty place that's conjured up from urban legends and Greek mythologies with like flying babies and ethereal clouds and like kittens everywhere, right? Like, I'm not even sure kittens are going to be in heaven, right? Like, kittens, cats, like, exterminate, right? Like, I'm just kidding. So he's <laughs> joking. I'm joking. They are God's creatures as well. Um, all right. <laughs> so, but I am talking about the ultimate new creation where heaven and earth are restored in newness and unity with God and his people for eternity. That's what we're talking about. We're going to fix our eyes upon that heaven this morning. But this is not a sermon about checking out from the world around us now. Hear that. Not at all. You see, what tends to happen, unfortunately, is when people get a true glimpse of heaven, they, they can tend to compare that vision of what heaven on earth is going to be like with what life is like now, and it creates this sort of frustration or despairing of life, even in this state. Because after all, that's what frustration is, right? Like it's comparing what could be with what is or what should be with what actually is and that gap between what is and what could or should be is often the source of our greatest frustrations and that can lead often to despair and hopelessness and so when applied to heaven it can sometimes create a confusion between a longing for heaven and a longing for death the enemy loves to take what God designed as hope to be our hope and turn it into despair. Because he is the twister, the perverter. He is the one who makes counterfeits. That's what he does. Right? And so this morning, I want you to see that death isn't the answer. Death is a defeated enemy. The resurrection of Christ is the answer. That's what I want you to see. You see, the goal of these passages is to paint a picture of the kind of kingdom God is calling you to identify with even now. In fact, this was the central theme of Christ's message during his earthly ministry. He came preaching the kingdom of God. The kingdom he declared was in their midst even then. Right? It's why he taught us to pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth now, as it is in heaven. And so the next couple of chapters that we're going to be in in Revelation, actually the last couple of chapters, paint a picture of what this kingdom will be like when it's fully realized in the new creation. The creation you were created for. But this vision is given for us as an encouragement that our hopes are not hollow. This is not a fairy tale. This is not just a sentimental anecdote. This is victory. This victory is real, and this kingdom is real. And in fact, it is coming, and it is coming physically upon the earth, terra firma. Not floaty, wispy, ethereal. We're going to be eaten. Right? We're going to be hugging each other. And we're going to be hugging Jesus. It's going to be great. Right? This, is, this is what we're looking at. But this vision is given for us as an encouragement. Right? So as we, as we drink in this vision of the future, 
Don't forget that in some ways this kingdom is already here, even in our midst. I want to give you spiritual eyes this morning, spiritual ears, spiritual hearts, because in some ways this king is already here in our midst. So we're not just going to focus on something that will happen one day when we die. This morning I want to talk about the joy and even Christ's calling to experience heaven on earth even now. This is not, again, I'm going to hammer this. This is not a call to check out and detach from this world. You know, that's Buddha's solution. Do you know that? That's New Age, weird, like, stuff that's got nothing to do with the purpose and mission of Jesus Christ. Buddha's solution is to detach, check out, go in full enlightenment mode so that you can get to a state of nirvana as people squander lives in poverty all around. Jesus is the incarnational God who enters in and transforms from the inside out. He is not the God of detachment. He is the God of engagement. He empowers his followers to do likewise. So this morning, I want to equip you with a heavenly perspective that applies directly to our earthly circumstance and the eternal joy of knowing Christ Jesus in the here and now. So remember this letter was written again to encourage the first century church who were in the midst of extreme difficulty and circumstances that are really like kind of beyond our imagination here in Virginia Beach anyway. So this vision is a call to take heart and to take hold of the truth. Now, some might say that we should be careful here because, of course, the Bible says we shouldn't be so heavenly minded that we're of no earthly good, right? You ever heard that verse before? Me neither, because it's not in the Bible. That is not in the Bible anywhere. You ever heard that before? You should don't be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. Yeah, well, maybe I'm the only one. <laughs> Read some more, people. Just kidding. <laughs> um, no, that, this is, this is a, a concept that has gotten into our culture, but it's not in the Bible, and it's totally wrong. Because the truth is, if you want to be of any real earthly good, you need to be. You must be heavenly-minded, because this earth was designed with heaven in mind. So we're to neither tech, we are to neither check out from this present earth nor from the vision of heaven because it's our vision of heaven that informs our earthly mission now. So, begs the question, what does it mean to be heavenly minded? Well, it means to fix your eyes on Christ because, and here's the main thing I want you to get this morning. If you get nothing else, this is what I want you to get. What makes heaven on earth so heavenly is the manifest presence of, and glory of Jesus, the Savior King. What makes heaven heavenly, what makes heaven great and awesome is the manifest presence and the glory of Jesus, the Savior King. I'm going to flesh that out as we go forward. So let's dive into Revelation 21, and we're going to let this vision of heaven awaken our souls for today. For the past couple of weeks, we've been in Revelation 20, which presented three visions for us. In the previous chapter, we got three visions. The first was a vision of the reign of Christ, and then it was followed by a vision of the final and total defeat of Satan. 
Okay? And so the title of that sermon was Victory Unveiled, Your Kingdom Come. Say, Your Kingdom Come. Then we finished chapter 20 with a vision of the final judgment in a sermon titled, Your Will Be Done. Say, Your Will Be Done. And now we're going to dive into Revelation 21, which presents us with a vision of heaven on earth. So the title of the sermon this morning is, On Earth as it is in Heaven. Say, On Earth as it is in Heaven. All right, turn with me to Revelation 21. We're going to look at verse 1 through 8, uh, and then we'll drop back and walk through it together. So I'm going to read through it. Here we go. Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water without uh, the, the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. All right, let's dive right in here. Verse 1, here we go. Again, it said, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So what's this talking about? Like, what is passing away, and what is it that's being made new? So this doesn't mean that there will be, like, zero connection between what we know and experience now and what will be known and experienced then. Like, this isn't like a blank slate scenario where God's just like, like, he's like shaking the etch-a-sketch, right? That's not what we're seeing here, right? This isn't like starting over, you're not going to have any memories of the things in the past. Like, there's a bunch of myths about heaven that have gotten into uh, modern society that I don't think are biblical at all. So let's see what it actually is saying. In fact, like, this doesn't mean there's going to be zero connection between what we know now and experience then. Um, in fact, like, probably the best insight that we have into the kind of transformation that will occur for all creation is presented to us in the resurrected and glorified body of Jesus Christ. Remember, he rose from the dead in his glorified state and spent 40 days with the disciples telling them about the kingdom of heaven. That's a powerful thought. And so the body of corruption was no doubt done away with, but his new glorified body is seen. And it was incorruptible. It was imperishable. It was everlasting. He's eating fish and hanging out with them. He's drinking. He's hugging. 
He's in this physical state. He was also like walking through walls. It was kind of like, I don't understand all this. There's some, some crazy stuff going on there. But, but the point here is that there is a transformation that takes place, but the idea of passing away and being made new doesn't mean absolute annihilation of the things that are heavenly and good. Okay? So what we're seeing here, follow me, what we're seeing here is a renewal and transformation where all that is corrupted by sin will be no more. This is apocalyptic language for purification and renewal. Notice that it says that the sea was no more. Again, this is that apocalyptic language, okay? It says that the sea was no more, right? So for all of you who love to go surfing and hanging out at the beach and love the ocean, like, too bad, no more water. It's not what it means. Okay? It doesn't mean that there's not going to be an ocean in heaven. Right? It doesn't mean that there won't be any beaches or, or surfing in heaven. Right? What it's saying here, if you've been following with us and tracking with us through this series, then you know that the sea is symbolic of evil and chaos throughout Revelation and much of the Bible. This is a part of the Hebrew thought. Remember that the sea is the origin of the beast in Revelation 13. And it was the origin of all hostile nations who opposed the kingdom of God. So remember when Jesus walked on the water? You guys remember this? It's an image of Jesus. He's walking on the water. It's a famous story, right? But it wasn't just, them, it wasn't just Jesus going, look, I can do miraculous things. Like, yes, it was, but it was so much more. It was a picture of Jesus trampling evil and chaos and destruction under his feet. It was a picture of his triumph as king over evil and chaos, right? And when he spoke to the seas and the storms and he told them to be still, that was a proclamation and a demonstration of his power over every opposition in all creation. It was an image that spoke to them. Who, and, and all who have a biblical paradigm through which they see the world, it was speaking to deeper truths and realities, and it was a foretaste of what's being revealed here in Revelation 21. And to say that the winds and waves know his name is to say that every commotion, every disruption, every disorder, it will all be silenced and stilled with a word from Christ the King. That's what's being communicated here. This vision is communicating that in the new creation, all of that evil will be gone forever. And the surfing is going to always be good. <laughs> I mean, that's what it's, I mean, it's really, that's what it says, it's the redemption of all things. Okay? And so, verse 2, here we go. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. You got, woo, all right. So you got you to gotta see this with spiritual eyes and ears. Like you've got to get this description in your hearts and realize this, this is a description of the new creation, okay? This is the description of the renewal of all things, and the language is highly illustrative and symbolic. It's like it's just too good to be able to communicate with one literal statement or even just one image. So we see 
a multiplicity of images that are trying to grab at your imagination so that you can see this with spiritual eyes and get it deep in your soul. That's what's being communicated here. So what do we see? We see a holy city, which is a reference to the people of God, the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. The new Jerusalem is what it says. So we see a city. Again, remember this city has been contrasted with the city Babylon, which represents the rebellious people of God throughout history, the hostile city. As we've walked through Revelation, we've seen those two cities. We saw Babylon, which represented all Like that that great city, great Babylon, it represented all of the hostile citizens of the earth who opposed the kingdom of God and the citizens of heaven. That was Babylon. It wasn't just one particular city. It's all the cities who stand opposed to the kingdom of heaven. And so this city, this holy city, represents also the people of God throughout history. It doesn't say this city is created here. This isn't the beginning of that city. This holy city exists even now. And if you're in Christ, you are a citizen of this heavenly city. Amen? And so we see a city, but it's not just a city. Again, just like Babylon was presented to us as both a city, but also a wayward and unfaithful prostitute, That's what we've seen in the past few chapters. We see that this holy city is also a faithful bride. But she's not just any bride. She's a prepared bride. She's adorned for her husband. She's beautiful. And if you are in Christ, she's you. You got to get this. Like You need to see. You need to see that if you've been washed in the blood of the Lamb as a disciple of Jesus Christ, then this is a description of you. You too, guys. This is for the men also. Right? I cannot overstate this. If you miss this, you're going to miss it all. This is everything. The new creation is described not only as a place, but a people. And not just a people, but a bride. Isaiah 62, verse 4. Let's look at that. The prophet Isaiah put it like this. He said, You shall no more be termed forsaken. And your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, My delight is in her. And your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. What? Like, what does that even mean? Because it, it, some of that's even it's hard for us to even comprehend. Like, this isn't just some, you got to get this. When it talks about the land being married, it's talking about the land because it's physical, right? There's a promise attached to this thing. This isn't just some ethereal, wispy place. This is the redemption of all things, not just the people, but the land as well. All of creation. This is the redemption for which creation is currently groaning, as Romans 8 talks about. Okay? So don't miss this, because again, this is everything. Your identity is not as one who is forsaken. That's the lie the enemy wants to tell you. If you are in Christ... 
If your faith is in him, then you need to get this in you. Because if you miss this, you're going to struggle with everything else that has anything to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your identity is not forsaken. Your name is not forsaken. You are not forsaken. Your name, your identity, what defines you and sets you apart is a, it's a new name that's been given to you. And that name is, my delight is in her. That's the name. It's one word in Hebrew. It's chesiba. I think I just butchered it, I'm sure. But it's Hebrew, and it's one word, my delight is in her. That's your name. You are his beloved. It's who you are. Because of Jesus, if you've received his love and grace. If you have trouble receiving his delight, then you need to hear his call for repentance this morning. I cannot overstate that. He's calling you to turn from the lies that you have believed, that lie that you've been abandoned or forsaken, to turn from the lie that your value in his eyes is dependent upon your performance. That's just works righteousness and pride that's disguised as false humility. We talked about this last week. Look, it's not humility to refuse his delight. That's not humility. Like that whole thing, like, like if someone looks at you, and, and you can imagine like if you're on your wedding day and, and the groom looks at you and is like, gosh, you're so beautiful. You don't sit there and go, gosh, shucks. No, I'm not. Be quiet. Say thank you. Right? Like this false humility that is so focused on your own capacity to be good enough. If he says you're beautiful, guess what? You're beautiful. Receive it. He's trying to speak life into you. Receive it. If you're in Christ, if you've received his grace through faith in Christ alone, then to refuse his delight is to refuse the very thing he purchased for you at the cross. If you're still saying you're not enough, even after he's died to redeem you, even after he himself has paid the price on your behalf, then you're actually not saying that you're not enough. You're saying he's not enough. His delight in you stretches beyond the grave. And he proved it at the resurrection. He's saying that he delights in you. You need to understand that this isn't just some sentimental anecdote that makes for a warm sermon illustration. This is everything. This is who we are. This isn't some nice thought that we store away in the recess of our minds so that we can pull it out when we get discouraged. This is what this is the platform of foundation. This is the rock upon which we stand. This is everything from which the kingdom life flows forth out of. You are delighted in by your creator and king. He loves you. He died for you. He set you free to receive that love and to walk in that salvation and that newness of life. And everything that we do is the overflow of that. And it pleases him. God is calling you to receive his delight as your identity. Not only that, he's calling you to receive his delight as your eternal residence. Like to dwell in the delight of the Lord forever. Again, 
look, his delight isn't just your name, it's your address. Right? This is where we dwell. This is what a new creation is all about. This is what we're looking forward to then. And so to prepare for that, we experience and we cultivate and we press in tenaciously to this reality now. It's not just a people, it's a place. And it's not just a place, it's a people. Revelation 21, 9 through 10. This is a preview of what we're going to look at next week. But this is what it says. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It's not just a city, it's a bride. So that's why there's the sense in which the kingdom is here in our midst as we gather together. Because the kingdom of heaven isn't just a place, it's a people. It's a people, united in his spirit and presence, rooted in his word, and set apart for his kingdom purpose even now. Now again, our experience of this unmitigated intimacy is only fully realized at his physical return. Amen? But over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, throughout Scripture, we are encouraged to taste and see that the Lord is good even now on this side of eternity as we worship him in spirit and in truth. Like this is what it means to operate out of the spirit or in the spirit, to lean into heaven, to behold our Savior King, and to be filled with his spirit and delight in his delight. Falling in love with what he loves. Enjoying the presence of the Lord in the here and now because it transcends all of our earthly circumstances. Right? So when, when we press into that reality, even and especially when it's difficult, it cultivates a deeper and deeper capacity to experience this kind of joy in eternity. It's almost like he's preparing you for something greater. Because he is. Do you delight in his delight? Do you enjoy God? Do you care about making him smile? Do you believe you even can? If not, I want to encourage you to ask him to change your heart. I want to encourage you to tenaciously posture yourself obediently before him in his word and in worship and in community with others who will take your eyes off of yourself and off of this world and place them on King Jesus. I want to encourage you to be the encouragers of one another and lift up high the name and the fame and the truth and the reality and the goodness and the delight of the Lord now in all things. In all circumstances. That's what his church is. That's what we do. And if people aren't doing that for you, do it for them. And ultimately, allow his spirit to be the lifter of your head. To press into the things of heaven now. Not because you're worthy, but because he is. And he delights in you. This is what fuels worship. This is what, to, to be a sweet aroma to the Lord is what motivates my every move, right? To think of my Father in heaven delighting in me as his child or his bride. And yes, the metaphors are mixed because he's articulating an intimacy that transcends all of it. 
He's trying to grab a hold of things that we understand and show you that it's way beyond all of it. That all of that, are those things are just shadows and he is the substance and source. Revelation 19.8 gives us a vision. We, 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 this was a couple weeks ago, but it gave us a vision of this bride and told us that it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And then it says, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. You are the saints if you're in Christ. All of you. Again, these are the good works done in the here and now out of a desire to bring delight to the Lord. You're adorned. He's, he looks at it and goes, that's beautiful. Look, look at her. She's sacrificing for me because she loves me, not because she's trying to earn my love, but because she's just the overflow of their hearts to lay down their lives and to do it in joy. Not to earn salvation, but because that salvation has changed our affections and our desires to worship him. To love our children when, when, when it feels like they, they're frustrating. To, to, to forgive and to unify and to not be offended, to let it all go and to be the people of God upon the earth. And when we fall short, to continue to realize that he still delights in us. Because it's not about what we can do, it's about what's been done for us in Christ. Verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. So this is the ultimate fulfillment of what God's been revealing to his people throughout the Bible. If you know your Bibles, and I hope you do, if you don't, read them. Right? But if you know it, then you know that this started with the Garden of Eden where God walked with Adam and Eve and they enjoyed intimate fellowship with God and each other. It was heaven on earth. That's how it all started. It's what we were created for. But that fellowship was broken by sin and creation was polluted by human rebellion. But the redemptive plan God set in motion has always been to dwell with humanity once again. And throughout the Bible, we've seen a progression of this plan through the redemptive story. The Bible is one long redemptive narrative that leads up to this culmination. We saw it in the tabernacle that God commanded his covenant people to set up in the wilderness. It was a place where he could dwell in the midst of his people. They were walking through the desert in a wilderness land, and God's like, I want you to make a tent, and I'm going to come down, and I'm going to dwell in that tent, and that tent's going to be right in the middle of you, wherever you go. You're sojourners in a land that's not your own. You're pilgrims on the way to a greater kingdom, and yet my presence is what will define you as my people, right? That's what he says, to what, that's what you're seeing in the Old Testament. Then we see that in the temple that's constructed on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, his presence is dwelling in their midst. He's teaching the people of God's hearts to realize that this is what it's all about. Okay? And then we saw it in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Right? Whose name was Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us. Like, it's like, it's like this, it's, all, it's like he's trying to get us to see that it's all about him being with us. It's like there's a progression here. Like he's trying to show you that it's all about relationship with him or something. This is the God who doesn't detach from us. 
It says the God who comes to us to dwell with us. And then we saw it through the coming of his spirit in Acts 2, right? This is the God who not only dwells with us, but desires to inhabit and dwell within us through his spirit. And finally, we see the full manifestation of it all in the new creation. That's what we're seeing here. You see, our longing for heaven isn't just a longing for a place. It's a longing to be with him without any limitations. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says this, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. That's not empty sentimentality. It's everything. you got to understand that the entire point of it all is this intimate relationship with God. Without that, it's meaningless. Because what makes heaven on earth so heavenly is the manifest presence and glory of Jesus. What makes heaven so great isn't the fact that there won't be any sin anymore. Like, that's going to be great. Amen? Can't wait for that. Well, actually, I can wait for that. You know why? Because he's with me now. Now. It's not great. Heaven's not going to be great because the food is going to be fantastic. It will be. Right? Or that there will be no more pollution or pain or death. That's like, oh. What makes heaven heavenly, though, is that everything we experience will be a direct conduit of his unmitigated glory and love and presence. All of it redeemed and restored to be in its uh, correct, righteous place. Which is to be a conduit of an experience of his goodness. All of it, which is honestly what makes all good things truly good on this side of eternity as well. Right? That's why the best compliment a chef could ever hear, if his mind is right, according to this, is when somebody takes a bite and says, praise God, that's good. Right? If you're a chef, think about that. Or, or if you're cooking for your family and somebody bites in and says, praise God, that's good. You know what just happened? You just became a culinary worship leader. You just took part in facilitating someone's experience of the goodness of God. There's no greater honor. The worst thing ever is to be like, yeah, I'm a great chef. Like, redeem that. Right? This is what, this speaks, by the way, to everything that we do in this life. As we bring heaven to earth through our work, through all that we do, it's almost as though whether in, in word or in deed, we should do all as unto the Lord. Right? Verse 4. I got to speed up. Um, <laughs> He will, verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Again, the best part about this isn't just that we will have every tear wiped away. It's that Jesus is the one who will be doing the wiping like, the tenderness here cannot be overstated. It doesn't just say that you won't have a reason to cry. That's true. But it says he will tenderly, personally wipe away every tear himself. Like, it's not just him wiping them away and saying, don't cry, you're in heaven, you're not supposed to. That's not what's happening here. He wipes them away and he replaces our sorrows with the joy of his presence. 
And I want you to see that he does this spiritually even now. Every sorrow, every tear of despair, he bottles them up and he holds them precious in his sight because he holds you precious in his sight. Psalm 56, 1 through 8, King David, he's going through a ton of stuff. And he writes this, verse 1 through 8. He cries out to the Lord and he says, Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape? In wrath cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. This is a man who knew that the Lord was near. How much more nearer is he to those who his spirit dwells within now? The new covenant. Isaiah 35, 10. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Remember, we saw this last chapter. The judge of all eternity is Jesus. Jesus is the judge. If you're in Christ, the one who judges is also the one who wipes away your every tear. Death shall be no more. Death was arrested and convicted at the cross, but here at his return, it's sentenced to the lake of fire, and he wipes away every tear. Every tear of mourning or sorrow or pain, every result of the former fallen world is restored with the tender caress of our Savior and King. I pray this is your hope, but it's not just a hope for something that might happen one day. He is here to do it now. Now, I want to tell you something. Again, whatever. We're going to talk about this later. He often does this through his church. His hands and feet upon the earth for you. You want to know what it's like for your tears to be wiped away by Christ? Enter into community with his people. You want to know what it's like to be hugged by Jesus? Come get a hug at Risen Church. We're going to get into that later. Verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. So I had a friend in seminary who was severely handicapped and bound to a wheelchair. His muscles had atrophied, and, and so he was much smaller than he would have been if he didn't have the disease. Um, we spent a lot of time praying for his healing, a lot of time praying for his healing. And one night um, after we had spent a lot of time in prayer and we were worshiping Jesus and we were just talking about heaven and we were talking about all these things and hearing from him and the struggles that he's gone through and all of that, and we're praying like, like believing that God actually can heal and, and just trying to navigate all of that stuff which is essentially trying to, it's realizing the kingdom that's here and yet not yet here, right? Like that's essentially what's going on there. And so I, I, we had struggled with this, and that night, that night I had had a dream 
that I was walking through campus, and this big, broad-shouldered man, about six foot two, walks up to me, and he's got a huge grin on his face. And as he approached, I somehow recognized that this was my friend. I still don't know how I recognized him. I just knew it was him in the dream, the one who was in the wheelchair. And now that dream didn't make me stop praying for his healing on this side of eternity, but I never looked at him the same way again. I described the dream to him, and I could see that same grin on his face that he had in my dream. And I realized that there's going to be an aspect of heaven that he's going to enjoy on a deeper level. Like I knew that God was going to make it right to the point of it all actually even being worth it. You got to get that in you. It all, look, this all sounds too good to be true to the ears of a fallen world, which is why I think he emphasizes here in verse 7, I'm sorry, verse 5, where he says, also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Because in this world, we can hear this stuff, and we can be like, ah, oh, fairy tale, ah, oh, sentimentality, ah, oh, this is just for, you know, empty positive thinking stuff. No! Write it down. These words are trustworthy and true. Verse 6. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. You see, this is why 2 Corinthians 1.20 says that all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Prosperity Gospels will go completely ballistic and tell you that all of your hopes and dreams for health, wealth, wisdom, and prosperity are to be realized on this side of heaven. That is an over-realized understanding of the kingdom of heaven. My concern, though, is that you have an under-realized understanding of heaven. Because to react to that and say, well, there is no goodness of God, we're just going to have to wait for that one day in the future, that's not true either. You follow me? This is the inheritance. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ Jesus. He is the inheritance that was purchased for all who would receive him through Christ's finished work at the cross. And this is the vision of the, these promises as they're physically and spiritually brought to bear upon God's people and all creation. That one day that it's all going to be fulfilled. Costly, valuable grace. This, this grace that we've been talking about throughout this series, that costly grace. Like we've really been talking about it throughout the life of our church and we'll continue to. It's the grace that's not cheap. It's the costly grace because it costs the most valuable price on earth. Because you were purchased at a price And yet, it's freely given to all who would receive it. It doesn't make it cheap. You see, when we value the gift of grace, we're valuing God himself. And when we cheapen grace, we're cheapening Jesus. See, declaring himself to be the Alpha and the Omega speaks to the value and worth of God on a level that's beyond our comprehension. Right? It's a reference to the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, but it's way more than just a reference to his eternal nature. Sam Storms, um, though again, this is beyond our comprehension, leave it to Sam Storms to grab hold of what we can get. Um, he put it like this. 
God is the first and only source and cause of all things, and he is the final and only goal and end of all things. Everything originates from him, and everything finds its meaning and value in relation to how it glorifies and honors him. Follow this. This means that there was nothing before him. Nothing explains him. Nothing has caused him. He simply and eternally is. There never was a time when God was not. There never was a time when he began to be. And there will never be a time when he isn't. He never at any time chose to be what he is. He has always been what he always is and always will be. God did not emerge out of a variety of possibilities. Rather, everything emerged out of him when he called the universe into existence. He is the Alpha. But he is also the Omega. The goal of all things is the glory of God. The aim of all things is the praise and honor of God. Nothing has any intrinsic value aside from its capacity to enjoy God and to make him known. If history appears aimless to you, I assure you that it is not. Even the most random and seemingly senseless events in some mysterious way are serving to point to God and to shine a light on his wisdom and justice and power and love and holiness. Verse 7. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. I could preach this for the next three years. The question, though, is how do we value the free yet costly gift of grace? How do we operate out of this lineage, this legacy, this birthright of sonship now? How do we do it? We conquer the enemy. We conquer the enemy. We stand and fight against the powers and principalities and rulers of this dark age. We walk out the spiritual heritage that we've been grafted into by the blood of Christ. We join with that great cloud of witnesses that have gone before us, as Hebrews 11 talks about. We'll get into that in a few weeks. But, and we do so by spiritually dying to our sinful desires and trusting in the Spirit's leading in all ways. We do it by suiting up in the armor of Christ that Ephesians 6 talks about and soaking in the delight of God as we go. Because all of that armor guys, is designed for you to be able to understand who you are in order to walk out this mission. Because what empowers us, this is what empowers us to conquer the enemy. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. Notice it didn't say, gosh, I just even thought about this. It doesn't say that he will have this legacy. He says, it'll be, you will have this heritage. means you've been grafted into something way bigger than yourself. That means that you're being grafted into something that he's been doing for a long time. He's giving you this heritage, this adoption as sons and daughters into a bigger family and a bigger kingdom and one that's greater and transcendent than all that you see. This is our heritage even now as we await our full spiritual and physical inheritance as his sons and daughters, right? To fight and identify the lies of the enemy and recognize who you are in Christ is who he says you are. To live from that place of victory, this is the root 
of our cry to our Holy Father who is in heaven and for his kingdom to come and for his will to be done on earth now as it is in heaven. And finally, verse 8 says this, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexual, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now hear me. Notice, this is about identity. Is your identity in these things? You may have struggles with these things. Do not make them your address. Do not make them your residence. Do not make them your identity. This is not who you are. And it's his grace that delivers you from those things. This is why confession that he is king and not me is so important. And repentance to look to him and not this world is so necessary continually. Again, don't get this twisted. Look, if heaven on earth is heavenly because of his full unmitigated presence and delight, if that's what makes heaven heavenly, then for those who have run away from his delight, they don't want to be there. They don't want to be in heaven. Nobody in hell wants to be in heaven. Did you know that? You see, if cultivating intimacy with Christ in this life is preparing us for eternity, an eternity of intimacy with him in the next, like, like if our hearts are transformed day by day by a healthy and growing obsession with his word and his presence and a longing for his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven, like if all of that is preparing for us that ultimate manifestation of his presence and eternal joy, Right? If that's your desire and he's cultivating and increasing that and that's how he's maturing you and growing you as his beloved, then for those who live lives of apathy, rejection, or even hostility to his presence and glory in this life are preparing for eternity as well. You see, without the grace of God, hard hearts become harder. Bitter hearts become more bitter. Hateful hearts become more hateful. Selfish hearts become more selfish. The hellish heart becomes more hellish. And there will come a day when they have been released from even the smallest morsel of his mercy and his goodness. We all taste it in this life. But will come a day, there will come a day when there will be no more access to that for those who are not in Christ. And so as we've seen throughout Revelation, nobody in hell wants to be in heaven you see, it's both punishment and receiving exactly what they asked for with their lives. Eternity apart from the righteousness of God. If you don't want to be where Jesus is now, what makes you think you're going to want to be with, where Jesus, with Jesus in heaven? Or then? There's a Zach Brown song. <laughs> There's a Zach Brown song called... Uh, Ain't in no hurry. You guys know this one? I'm not going to sing it for you, but the lyrics go like this. Heaven knows that I ain't perfect. I've raised a little cane, and I plan to raise a whole lot more before I hear those angels sing. Going to get right with the Lord, but there'll be hell to pay. But I ain't in no hurry today. 
I know a lot of people who think this way. So here's my question. Again, what makes you think that a life of self-indulging rebellion against God is going to somehow cultivate a heart that's going to suddenly fall in love with Jesus as Savior and King later? If by God's grace he's broken into our cold-hearted world today, I'm pleading that you would run to him, that you would rivet your eyes upon his goodness and glory and let him give you a new heart, a changed heart. Beg for it. A heart that loves what he loves because it's a heart that receives his love and grace by faith in Christ alone. Because what makes heaven on earth so heavenly is the presence of Jesus. Jesus is the presence that becomes the cure-all of all creation. He is the friend that we all need. He's the spouse that we were all made for. He is the substance of parental love. He is the one who is closer than a brother. Everything else is a fallen, corrupted shadow of that substance. You know what that means for you now? That means that even when others let you down, you can still love them. You can still forgive them. You can still let go of offense and bitterness because if he is in you, then even your disappointments become heavenly appointments for drinking deeply from that like all-satisfying love of God. Even now. When you're disappointed, I want you to remember that. When you're disappointed in the things of this life, think, this is not a disappointment. This is an appointment. I have an appointment with Jesus right now for him to be my all in all. This is how his kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven in and through you. That's what supplies true security and confidence in his people. To love even our enemies, to forgive, to endure, and to stand firm, even to love those who may very well hurt us. This is how we're able to develop thick skin and soft hearts. Not thin skin and hard hearts, that's the world's route. He's called you to secure your lives in Christ He's your refuge, he's your strength, and his joy, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Even when you've been wronged, when you've been misunderstood, if you've been misrepresented, or even slandered intentionally, he's with you and he knows. There's a verse in Exodus 2, I'm going to close with this, where Moses, he's at the end of his rope. He's a fugitive on the run in Midian. The people of God, the people of Israel are oppressed, enslaved, and they're crying out for deliverance in a horrible scenario in Egypt. And Moses is like, I don't know what to do. Everything is crazy. Everybody's crying out, like, where is God? What's going on? And the chapter ends with this simple verse that should land in your heart with the hope of eternity. Exodus 2, verse 25, it simply says, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Woo! Like, he knows. He sees you. He loves you. He's redeemed you, and he's called you by name. And that name is, my delight is in her. Let's pray.